As you may have noticed, there's a couple of uh, characters on stage here uh, with me. We've got Bob the tomato, uh, Larry the cucumber. We've got Junior the asparagus. He's a new addition. Some of you who have been around Encounter for a little while might remember um, these friends of ours were visiting once in the past as well. Last summer, we did a series called Sunday School Revisited. Uh, Premise of the series is to say that there's these Sunday School stories that maybe you heard growing up in a Sunday School. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you heard about them through, like, seeing a veggie tale or or in a movie or or reading about it, uh, some uh, reference to it in the newspaper or a magazine. There's these Sunday school stories that um, are almost um, geared towards kids most of the time, except for the fact that when we open up a Bible and we read them as adults, it's like these light bulbs go off and we realize these were not just for like uh, elementary school kids. There's application for middle school, for high school, and for uh, especially for us uh, now as adults too. And so we count it as a privilege to open up Bibles and to say, God, what's in this story? Maybe we've heard before, maybe we haven't heard it before, but now what kind of fresh meaning can we see in a familiar story? Just quick example of uh, uh, how this works. Last year, we took a look at the story of David and Goliath. A lot of people know that story. A lot of uh, people see reference to it all over. And one thing that I want to make clear about the entire series is that uh, we don't replace the meanings that we've learned in Sunday school. Like, that holds true. David and Goliath, little guy versus big guy. Like, the takeaway there is, you know what? You can do anything when God is on your side. We open it up as adults, and we go, you know the story of David and Goliath? It goes back a lot longer than just that one day. I mean, it's easy to get the the application of you can do anything with God is on your side in a matter of of minutes of confrontation. We open up these stories as adults and we can see this story goes back years and years and years. Uh, Several chapters before David ever met Goliath, he's a boy, he's guarding or he's, he's tending dad's sheep in the middle of nowhere. And as a kid, as a bored kid, uh, he's got nothing to do all day than to work on his aim with a slingshot, which is like a long band of leather with a pouch attached. And so he's just like slinging rocks over and over and over again. Rocks, uh, softball size, quite heavy. Get those things going 80, 90, if you're good, 100 miles an hour. Okay, he's a kid in the field. A bear or lion comes up, and this is in the, in the story as well. Guys, he was dropping lions before most of us learned long division, right? (laughs) Takeaway in the story, when David meets Goliath, is not like you can do anything with God is on your side in a matter of minutes, but what's God preparing you for? Like, what has God been working on in your life for years and years and years? What moment is he uh, he having you go through training to, to overcome? You can do anything with God is on your side. What we don't always realize is that he's training you right now for something that might not happen for five or even ten years. This morning, we take a look, and we're going to open up the the story of, uh, of Jacob. And if you were to open it up in a Bible and take a look, you would see the, the editor's note, right? So not the Bible words themselves, but what, uh, what the editor like, writes in to help you read it a little more easily. He says, uh, Jacob marries 
Rachel and Leah. And you're going, I, I don't remember talking about like, marrying more than one woman at a time in Sunday school. Like, we don't spend a lot of time on that with your little kids. Probably for good reason. So immediately we open up and we're like, okay, something's going on here. There, there's probably something in this story that maybe we missed as kids reading this. Maybe there's something new here for us as adults. Yeah. Story goes back a lot uh, longer than just Jacob and, and Rachel and Leah. Jacob is, uh, is one of these characters uh, in this story that like, has quite a few chapters about him. And so I just want to uh, do a quick overview, let you know this is who this guy is. Um, not to air his dirty laundry or anything, but just to say it's important for this morning's story for all of us to know uh, like what kind of character, what kind of heart Jacob brings to the table. It's easy to see in reoccurring uh, characters throughout the, the, the biblical story, it's easy to see like, he, oh, he's a good guy or she's a bad guy. When it's like, wait, hang on. In this story, there are no good guys. There are no bad guys. In fact, it's not even their story. It's God's story. So uh, Jacob comes on the scene and he's not an only child. He's a twin. He's the second born by minutes, which means everything in that culture. It means he's no longer in line to, to inherit the family business. His older brother Esau is. When Esau is born, they see him for the first time. And the boy is covered from head to toe in hair. And so they name him Harry, Esau in Hebrew. It's like you got to love the parents' uh, creativity in the naming. Jacob comes out, and uh, it, right on his heels, in fact, he's holding onto his brother's heel as, as he's delivered. And so they look at him, and, and they name him, again, very creatively, Jacob, which in Hebrew means uh, heel grabber. It's like, awesome. Uh, I don't know if it became the euphemism later on, or, or if this was already started back then, but as it turns out, there's like uh, other stories even outside of the Bible that indicate that, that like grabber of heels or, or heel grabber it is this slang word for, for trickster or for deceiver. You know, maybe it wasn't the time then, but, but that's how it turned out. And it, I just submit to you that truer words probably were never spoken in this family's life. Later on, uh, Jacob sort of cultivates a character of deceit. In fact, uh, when he's much older and his dad is much, much older, his dad, Isaac, uh, trouble seeing, trouble hearing, calls Esau, firstborn in, to say it's time. It's time that we make this official, that when I'm gone, you, Esau, get everything. And along with getting everything, you bear the responsibility to take care of your kid brother, Jacob, even though he's minutes younger than you are. Jay, or Esau, it all goes to you. But we're not going to ink this deal on empty stomachs. So go out, hunt, kill something, drag it home, cook it up, and let's do it over dinner. Esau heads out. Jacob gets wind of this conversation, uh, pulls something out of the ancient equivalent of the refrigerator, uh, brings it in, cooks it up, brings it in to dad, Dad says, Esau, is that you? 
Jacob the deceiver says, yes, it is. Isaac, his dad, proceeds to to sign over, in a sense, everything that belongs to the family upon his death. And says, not now, but later on when I'm gone, you will receive it all. Jacob leaves. Esau comes back. And there's this moment in this story when when Isaac, the dad, and Esau realize what just happened. And he, he says, Jacob, Jacob deceived me. And that, I just want to let that linger. Because it's important for us in this story to realize that Jacob, for whatever reason, has cultivated a heart of deceit. He's a liar. He's dishonest. He's trickery. He's just deceitful. And it will catch up with him. Let's... uh. Read this story together. This comes from Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29, start off in uh, verse 14. It's on the back of your flow sheets, also on the screen behind me. By the way, the words immediately before this one are, uh, are Laban, Jacob's uncle, saying, um, Jacob, you are uh, you're bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, your family. Uh, Jacob has, uh, has run away from his family. He's He's looking to start his own family. He's looking for a, for a lady. He's looking for a wife. He finds Laban. He lives with him. Pick it up here in verse 14, Genesis 29. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. And I have to like, interject and point out, this is what you call a backhanded compliment. Like when somebody sees you that they haven't seen you in a long time, and they're like, hey, you look great. I didn't even recognize you. And you're like, thanks, I think. Like, what was that supposed to mean? Um, Laban is now saying, Jacob, just because you're a relative doesn't mean you should work for free. Set a wage. Jacob's been hanging around for a month. Like, he's realized that everybody else has gotten a paycheck, he has not. He stays because he's operating on the assumption that, I don't know, maybe because Laban just said, you're bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, he's operating on the assumption that, hey, I guess I'm family here. Uh, He hasn't received the inheritance from his dad, uh, Isaac, yet. And so he comes into this and he goes, I have a chance to like double dip here. Like, if I'm family here, I can get uh, a share of this inheritance as well. When Laban says, set your wage, he's essentially uh, demoting him from uh, family in line to the inheritance. He's demoting him from somebody who, who has something to barter with to someone who has nothing. Demoting him from, like, uh, son or, or nephew. Demoting him down to expendable employee. And this is trouble if he's going to fulfill his mission. Mission, remember, is find someone I can start a family with. In the day and age, um, this costs money. 
Sometimes at weddings, you know, you go to and you talk to the mother of the bride, mother of the groom afterward, and say, you haven't lost a daughter, you've gained a son-in-law. True now, then, it's like, nope. You just lost a daughter. And a groom's family would bear the responsibility to compensate them for the financial loss of losing that worker. Uh, Jacob now has nothing to barter with at all. Verse 16, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes. Not sure what that expression means. Nobody's really sure. But in context, I think it makes sense. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Leah was something. Rachel was something else. (laughs) Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. Quick comment, bride price, according to archaeological evidence in the ancient Near East, uh, 30 to 40 shekels of silver. No, if that didn't like make a point with you, no. Okay, day laborer's wage. Somebody that Jacob was, something that he was making. Average wage for a good guy, one shekel of silver a month. Uh, quick math here: uh, shekel a month times twelve times seven, eighty-six shekels of silver. We're talking a uh, price that's set here two to three times the going rate. In uh, ancient Near Eastern legalese, it's called extortion. Laban says, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. I don't have the legal eye, but what we're going to see is he doesn't say, yes, it's a deal. He says, yeah, it's better she go to you than someone else. Stay here. Verse 20. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Isn't that cute? (laughs) Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to make love to her. (laughs) There goes the romance. Uh, It's been seven years. (laughs) So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. It's a switch, right? I mean, uh, it's dark, there's no lights, they've been partying all day and night, heavy veils. There's a switch. Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel. Didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's uh, bridal week. It's like a week-long reception. Then we'll give you the younger one also. 
in return for another seven years of work. Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also. And his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. He worked for Laban another seven years. We spent some time looking at the, the character of Laban, of Jacob. And we said, based on what we know of his history, he's a, uh, he's a known liar, he's a cheater, he's uh, dishonest and downright deceitful. Important for us to know his character. We find him meeting up uh, his uncle here, Laban, works for him for a little while. Uh, Laban uh, gets a month's worth of work out of him for free and then says, uh, all right, it's time for you to be demoted. I'm not writing you into the will. Set your wage, work for it. Uh, Laban creates a contract with a loophole you could drive a truck through and says, yeah, yeah, no, 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 stay here. You're, you're a good guy. Stay here with me. Um, he knows what's going on. He's been able to, to track this for a little while. At the last minute, switcheroo happens, and, it, and it's like reading the story, you know, from the author's perspective. Right? Forget about Jacob's perspective right now. Uh, forget about the time, the distance between you know, his, his old transgressions and his, you know, th- what's new been going on. Um, pick it up from our perspective, and you're going, I can't help but see the irony here. I mean, the irony of, of not just someone saying, hey, you deceive, Jacob deceived me, and now Jacob's saying, hey, Laban, you deceived me. Not just that obvious irony, but also behind about just like the idea of Esau, Jacob, switcheroo, I get the family inheritance instead of you. And now I'm working for Rachel and Leah, switcheroo. I'm now on the receiving end of this. Right? I just want you to see something about Jacob's character and the, what he's developed, this deceitfulness, and also Laban's character, his deceitfulness, his, his cheating, his lies, nuanced in a certain way as they are. I just want to like, back up for a minute and, and point out uh, one of two main takeaways that I, I want you to leave here this morning with. I just want us to see in this story that Jacob's uh, chickens come home to roost. <laughs> Takeaway number one is, is chickens. Last week we were talking about um, greed and sloth, and we said from this uh, Bible passage in Corinthians, um, you reap what you sow. And those words aren't used a whole lot, so I said, you know, uh, a lot of us have gardens. You pick what you plant. What you put into the garden is what you take out. You be generous with the seeds that go into the ground, and so you'll, you'll be given generously with the vegetables and the fruit you take out of the garden at the end of the day. You reap what you sow. You plant. You pick what you plant. And here, your chickens come home to roost. A few different types of chickens coming home to roost here. Uh, first of all, he's got business chickens. I mean, merely like uh, contract transactions where his brother is supposed to get this deal done and he's got uh, 
business check-ins where he switches with his brother and so that he gets this cash um, when his dad dies instead of his brother. Business check-ins coming home to roost. He's trying to make a deal with uh, his uncle Laban here and to say, okay, I'm trying to marry this girl. And uh, we had a deal, didn't we? Your business check-ins come home to roost. Family chickens come home to roost. He deceives his father. He lies to his dad. He tricks his brother. We can follow the Jacob story. And now with his uncle, you would think he'd be able to trust family, now deceives him, pulling the same tricks on him as he did his family. We can follow the Jacob story in all through his lives. He finds himself in exile, away from his family, literally scared to meet his older brother because of what he might do with them. Friends, your family chickens come home to roost. I said, takeaway number one is chickens. But I almost want to caveat that and say it's true. It's worth mentioning. But it's easy to see the story almost as this like romantic comedy kind of fairy tale trajectory. They all follow the same basic plot, right? Um, Same plot of uh, of like a guy is uh, uh, maybe maybe a dirtbag, maybe kind of a jerk, and he meets this woman. It is his old life. He falls in love with her. His old life catches up to him. He has to learn a hard lesson the hard way. He learns that, and now he gets the girl. Cue the credits. They live happily ever after, presumably. That's a fairy tale. That's a like romantic comedy version of the story. So it's easy for us to to write into this. They go, oh, you know what? Jacob is that guy. I mean, uh, his, uh, he meets a girl, falls in love. She finds out about his past life. Or, or his chickens come home to roost. He's got to learn a hard lesson the hard way. But eventually, he overcomes. Fourteen years later, he gets the girl, and they live happily ever after. Easy to see the romantic comedy version of this. And in that version, Leah is now like the roadblock to Jacob's success. Or it, it, Leah is the roadblock to Jacob and Rachel living happily ever after. So we can obviously see here, right, that Jacob is the good guy, even though he's got a hard lesson to learn, and Leah is the bad guy who's the stumbling or the roadblock in the way of Jacob and Rachel's happiness and living life happily ever after. Cue credits. Remember what I said. In this story, there's not a good guy. There's not a bad guy. In fact, it's not Jacob's story at all. It's not Rachel's story at all. It's God's story. And when God tells the story, it goes on. I mean, I just read the story. And I have to almost wonder, Jacob works for seven years to earn the right to call Rachel his wife. You know, I don't, I don't know what it was like. I don't know if they were like off in a corner, kind of flirting together, I mean, talking, just dreaming about their, what their life is going to be like after these seven years are gone. I know that he was in love with her. We know that he desired her deeply. Seven years go by, he marries the wrong woman. You know, what was it like 
for those next seven years. And so he, he marries both of them within a week's time, but he's got a debt to pay off. He's got seven more years. What was it like for the roadblock? What was it like to be the third wheel in the relationship that said, you know, the only reason, the only reason why I'm even written into this story is because my dad tricked my future husband. And I knew about it. I could see them going off in the corner. I'm the older one. I should have gotten this first. I should have been the one that the boys were interested in instead of my sister. What was it like to live those seven years in Leah's shoes? We know. Because the very next verse, verse 31 When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive and Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it's because the Lord has seen my misery. She describes at least the last seven years as misery. This line, I think, speaks volumes. Surely my husband will love me now. Is all I want out of this world. Is all I want is to simply be loved. I don't know what her life was like growing up in her little sister's shadow. But we know that the one thing that she wants out of this world, she's not getting to simply be loved. She conceived again. When she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord has heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she says, Now, at last, my husband will become attached to me, because I've borne him three sons. She named him Levi, which, by the way, means attached to me. I'm not sure how long it's been to have these three kids, but we're talking about three, four years, minimum, maybe more. During this time, she, she names the boys after the state of her heart, which is like, all I want in this world is for someone, is for Jacob to take notice of me and to care. This last one, Levi, she just says, now she downgrades from being loved. Now he will simply be attached to me. Like, at least now he'll have to pay attention to me. In this story, Leah, if she was just a roadblock, I don't think that we would have gotten the the history about her that we do. Because I think God writes her into the story to say, you know what, I think that there may be more than a few people who could identify with Leah. I mean, there's probably a few people who are going like, I've made some deals, I've said some things, my chickens are going to come home to roost. Get ready. There's probably some people who can identify with Jacob. There's probably some people who can identify with Leah and say, you know what, for whatever reason, it's like I'm not 
good enough. I'm not worth loving. And she's not a bad guy or a roadblock in the story. She's simply a character that God wants to share with us. Something happens in between kids uh, three and four. Because in verse 35, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she named him, or sorry, gave birth to a son, she said, which is also the meaning of the name, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, which means praise. And then she stopped having kids. Something happens in between kids three and four whose names are like, God has noticed me, whose names are um, attached, whose name is not loved. Kid number four, whose name means praise. It's not Jacob's story. It's God's story. And in God's story, I think he graces Leah with this overwhelming sense. Not like your husband loves you now. Not like, like you're cared for. But he graces Leah with this sense like God saying, at least I'm near. I care about you. Everybody else passes you over, but Leah, I won't. I just wonder what it's like for those of us who have been passed over time and time and time again. It's like, why, why do they look at her and not me? Why am I passed over? I mean, why is it that I go to interview after interview after interview and, and like no one bites? What is it about me? Why am I not noticed? Why is it at work when, when special projects are being handed out to everybody and there's like the really big ones and then there's the extra kind of things? Why is it that I always get the extra kind of add-on things and not the really big projects? Why is it that I'm passed over time and time again? Is it because I'm no good? Is it because I'm unlovable? And by the time uh, child number four comes along, it's like Leah has this experience of grace where now she can say, you know what, doesn't matter doesn't matter because God has noticed. God does care. I am loved. Levi had a great-great-grandson, Moses. Years, years later, this clan, this family clan has grown into not just like hundreds or thousands, hundreds of thousands. Moses is the one who leads them out of slavery and, and right up to this, this place, this land of their own. This last one, Judah. Judah's great-great-great-great-grandson is the best king who has ever sat on Israel's throne. Leah's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson not just a king of this planet, of this earth, or of Israel, 
He's born, name's Jesus. He's the prince of heaven. All Leah wants in this world is to know that she's loved. Her great, 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 great grandson not only loves her, but dies for her. Everyone else saw her and passed her over. God sees her as a princess, worthy of being the great-great-great-great-grandmother of the Prince of Heaven. Loves her to the point to die for her. And he'll die for you too.